When the rules of society are broken, things can get a little wild. This is Wild Society. Sorry. Oh, wait, were we recording? Yeah, we're recording. Oh, wait, I'm going to say off. something. Okay. Oh, wait, oh, wait. Okay. To our first podcast of Wild Society, when we put our minds together, there's nothing we can't do. Yeah. Cheers. I said that wrong. <laughs> he wrote it down. Wrote it down. <laughs> I got to do that again. Sorry. Okay, do it. Right. I'm like, did he write this down? Hold on. Oh my God, Jordan. <laughs> Come on, do it. Okay. To our first. Is- Jesus. <laughs> Gosh. We're off to a great start. <laughs> okay. To our first podcast of Wild Society, when we put our minds to it, there's a lot of shit we can't do. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers to that. Cheers, bitch. Cheers. Yay, our first episode ever, guys. Ever, ever. Welcome, everyone. This is Wild Society. We are a true crime comedy podcast, and every week we'll be telling two stories. One will always be about murder, which is why we know most of you are here. And the second one will just be some sort of wild, crazy, bizarre story. Might have a little touch of murder here and there. But the thought is to end with a little bit of a lighter note, but still weird and creepy and freaky and bizarre i like how you said a touch of murder like it's a cookbook like just a little dab of murder a dash a dash can we talk about um courtney's look right now she looks totally like a professional podcaster i came prepared pink clear glasses totally on trend mcdonald's she brought mcdonald's for everyone yeah, she brought it for herself that she was rude champagne for everyone if you wanted anything i don't that's not it didn't my phone was off i don't know what you're talking Y'all about. haven't read my shirt yet either what's it say Tired as a mother. Courtney's a mom. She's the only mom on the podcast. Is there an F-bomb under there? <laughs> no. Just Where's your cute head. but psycho hat? Oh, man. That would have been just my perfect. Yep. I'll wear that next week. <laughs> next week. So before we introduce ourselves, we want to give a big shout out to Carly Hummel. Hey, Carly. Carly. Carly designed anything that you see that says Wild Society or our abbreviations. She's a rock star and we'll be posting her website in the show notes. So go take a look if you need a graphic designer. Carly Hummel's where it's at. She's okay. <laughs> she is Just our- kidding, Carly. I love you. You're amazing. <laughs> She's the president of our Kansas City fan club, right? Oh, obviously. Okay. Hey, everyone. My name's Chad Previch. I am married to this sexy man that I know named Jordan Nichols, who's sitting to my left, your right, on the radio dial. They, they still say that. <laughs> um, so I'm a former crime reporter. I was a reporter for about six years, and a lot of that I spent covering all the stuff that we're probably going to be talking about. So um, I still have a little bit of that newsy side to me where... I want to make sure our facts are correct. I'm looking at all three of you when I say that. 
Um, but I, I stop because it's a very intense job. So I have a lot of respect for reporters calling people who their family member was just killed. Um, it's, it's a pretty stressful job. So I don't do that anymore. Um, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to my sexy husband, Jordan Nichols. <laughs> well, after such an introduction, I can hardly wait to see what I'm going to say. <laughs> I can drink her. <laughs> Have you been practicing? <laughs> Just written in your notes. Bitch, don't call me out. Jordan has a whole page. Get away page. from my At notes. He has episode. a whole page away of, from of notes. notes that he was making for jokes. Yeah, don't read ahead. Stuff like that. Really don't read ahead. So, you know. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm pleased to be with you. Are you announcing your candidacy for something? <laughs> and that concludes my prepared speech. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. I'm Jordan. I am an Oklahoma native. I am Chad's husband, as he said twice. Um, He's lucky. I'm a set stylist, photo prop stylist for a Pretty prominent company here in Oklahoma. I won't say who it is. Um, I love true crime. I love horror movies. It's my favorite genre of movie. I love anything gory. Um, I love fall. I'm a flannel gay. <laughs> you pull it off well. And the only thing I've gained from 2020 is about 20 pounds. So fuck you, 2020, and fuck Preach. you, DoorDash. <laughs> and Postmates. Or thank you. And Postmates. <laughs> and and this- Grubhub. And... Uber Eats. This episode is sponsored by Uber Eats. <laughs> it's not good. Um, it's my and turn. I'm going to pass it on to my favorite basic bitch. Oh, yeah. That's fun with all the love in the world. Uh, yes, it's okay. Take Courtney. Um, I'm Courtney Klein. I'm a wife. No last names. You said yours. Oh, I did say my last name. <laughs> and you said Jordan. Don't give your social security out, though. Uh, Gotta leave something to the imagination. <laughs> I have brown hair and blue <laughs> Um, I'm a wife and a mom to a 21-month-old. It's a lot of fun. Sweet little angel babe. She's half of an angel. <laughs> I thought you were going to say she's 21 years old, and I was like, we didn't know <laughs> about this. Mm, yeah, no. She's our mascot. She, she she's a person. She's not a, no, she's, she's, she's a hey, person. Hey, I didn't tell y'all. She loves our intro song. She dances to it. I need a video oh, of her next yeah. time. Oh, she I love her intro shakes song. her shoulders. She's got the shoulder. She's oh, yeah. got the, the dance I face. love her. Like I said, I'm basic, pumpkin spice everything, fall, leggings, all the things. Courtney doesn't stop to smell the roses. She stops to smell the fall candles in the hearth and hand section at Target. Oh, heck yeah, I do. Shout out to Joanna Gaines. What's great about Courtney is she owns her basicness. I do. You don't run away from it. it. Oh, it's, and from us, it's with with total love. We admire your basic bitchness. The edgiest thing on Courtney's playlist is Sam Smith. So I'm Bethany. I'm born and raised Oklahoma City. And when I was younger, I knew that I either wanted to be a Spice Girl, you know, like Ginger mm-hmm. Spice, obviously, Redhead Love. Yeah, sure. she's my favorite. I mean, yeah, still. Or I wanted to be the next Katie Kirk, obviously. So I went to school at OU, Boomer Sooner, and I studied journalism. Um, but I didn't go into journalism. I went into photography. Blew everyone out of the water with that one. Shocker. Because I was always the friend that had the camera and following people around, taking pictures. That's called stalking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of our stories are going to be the story of you 
<laughs> That'll be episode nine. Bethany <laughs> just might have the creeper. My window. <laughs> Who's that? No. Oh, it's Bethany. Bethany, what are, why are you in the bushes? <laughs> I looked out the window when you said that, Jordan. I was like, we have a fan. <laughs> no, this was back in the day, pre-iPhone. I mean, I had the Canon actual power shot camera, always in my purse, taking pictures. But Speaking of which, make sure you follow us on MySpace. <laughs> so, I'm Bethany, and I had a Canon. <laughs> so, I'm a photographer. I specialize in travel and lifestyle landscape photography, um, and I love it. I've worked for several different magazines, um, managed photo shoots for a few companies, and yeah, that's what I do. That's what I love. And we love you. Oh, thank you. Very much. So this morning was my first day back to the office. Oh, was that really? Mm-hmm, for because of COVID since March twelfth. Weird. And the whole day was screwed up. Like, I I forgot what time I set my alarm for in the morning, so I just guessed. And apparently, I set it for too late because I'm in the shower. And Jordan c- comes in. He's like, "You're taking too long," because he's been working <laughs> back at the office. And so the whole day was just. It felt like the first day of school after summer. Right. Remember when you were a kid? Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't know how to do anything. I had to remember to put a belt on. <laughs> like, what to wear. I mean, you haven't been wearing clothes since March. <laughs> so they don't I haven't. <laughs> I've been just naked r- walking around the city. <laughs> anyway, so my girl Kitty was in the break room. I'd never met her before. And she told me that she Kitty? set her alarm on time. Kitty? Kitty. Kitty? She's, okay. she's my girl. Shout out to Kitty. Um, but she was like, yeah, I was so... Like, I couldn't figure out what I was doing. She's like, I was so happy I set my alarm for 5.30. It was accidentally PM. So she showed up late. Oh, no. I was like, Kitty's having a rough, rough go at it. But my last day I was in the office was my birthday back in March 12th. And the people at work had put like balloons and streamers and things like that. Well, when I got back today, it looked like a zombie apocalypse. The balloons were all like faded and <laughs> on the ground and they're streamers. But somebody took the vodka that I had in my office that they gave me that day. Mysteriously disappeared. Yeah, that one disappeared. Um, <laughs> real quick, let's give a shout out to everybody who listened to our our little tease last week. Yeah, yeah. We were we looked at where our listeners were from, and Dallas was our number one audience, yeah. which was weird. Hey, I mean, Texas. we know people in Dallas, but by like a lot. Yeah, Dallas was number one, and then the Oklahoma City area, Detroit, Atlanta, and Austin. We even went international. By that I mean one listener in France, uh, and I'm <laughs> I'm going to attempt to say the city, Clichy Il de France. <laughs> that was where they were from. That's so shout out to Clichy, Clichy. <laughs> no offense, France, we love you. And we had like 20 states. That's bizarre. That's awesome. We don't even have an episode no. yet. Yeah, That's there was crazy. like two people in Idaho. Like who? I'm just Does that so mean that's how many people, people love my excited. voice? I think it was your voice. <laughs> And since that tease like went out, Jordan, Piper, you just reeled him in. Jordan's been walking around talking about how he's the voice of the podcast. <laughs> so he already has a big, big head. Girl. No denying. Glitchy. <laughs> I just want to say, too, that we're all friends here for people who are listening. So we'll give each other shit. But we love each other. I mean, huh? why talk when you can mock? So. <laughs> so gangster today. Oh my gosh. Today. Is the 16th anniversary of Green Day's American Idiot. Isn't that so OMG. exciting? Chad is Green Day's biggest fan. I am. Are you oh, listening, God. Billy Joe? <laughs> and happy fall. Is it the first day? Well, the 21st is the first day of fall. Oh. So it well, will today be fall. Well, today the 21st. To, yes. Sorry. Uh, oh, 22nd is the first oh. full day. 
tomorrow. Okay. Happy fall, everyone. Because it'll be Wednesday. The best time of the year. And you guys Finally. all start asking what day it is. <laughs> it's part of the illusion, Courtney. <laughs> That's when... Fall is when I blossom. That is... If you go into my closet, I've got like two pairs of shorts and I've got like three t-shirts, but I have like 500 coats, 300 sweaters. It's true. 40 pairs of jeans and 20 pairs of boots. The other day, the high was 80 and Jordan left wearing three layers and he came back. He's like, I'm so hot. I'm like, you have, you have a, two jackets on and it's 80 degrees. He's trying to will fall to appear. a girl can wish. Hey, this year it's come a little early though than it has in the past. Not, I'm not complaining about it. The office is freezing. Are you a meteorologist? <laughs> Actually, that was my second choice. No, it wasn't. Yes, literally. Oh my god. Yeah. So you left that out. Listeners don't know. I went to fashion school school. in LA. I did. Um, But my second choice was to go to meteorology school, but I didn't because I didn't. I really wanted to be a tornado chaser. No, obviously, because we live in Oklahoma. But you know, ninety percent of the year you're sitting behind a computer, and I didn't want to do that. Oh yeah, we're in Oklahoma City. We probably need to say that. Hi. Okay, guys, there's, I feel like there's so much pressure on me right now. Everyone's staring at me. The first one to go. There's so Under much pressure. pressure on me right now. First story, first murder, first episode. So I'm going to take a Under deep pressure. breath. And here we go. Okay. This is the story of the 1929 St. Aubin Street Massacre in Detroit. Ooh, I don't know this one. So I decided I wanted to do a, uh, a story from the state that has... <laughs> The lowest percent of solved murders. Really? Yeah. And to my horror, that is my home state of Michigan. Wow. That's interesting. I know. Between 1980 and 2008, only 52% of Michigan murders were solved. Wow. So wow. You basically, now that I'm encouraging murder, do we need to get an attorney for our, to represent us? <laughs> I'm not encouraging murder in the state of Michigan, but you almost can get, you almost have as good amount of chance getting away with murder Yikes. than they yeah. than do solving it. And then to put that in perspective, in Oklahoma, where we're at, 83% get solved. Hmm. And it's 67% nationally. And that's from the Project 67? Cold Case. 67.org. 67. That's still not also terrifying. No. Yeah. So I could kill three of you, and they might solve one of those murders. Or two, I guess. I'm, we're not math majors here. Look. Well, no, don't kill me because are. I haven't taken out life insurance. Policy. Yeah, I'll wait till you sign the papers and then yeah. we'll know dead. the truth. Okay. So... I did not want to do like a heavy murder, so I did some research on on some Michigan famous cases, and this is how I came up with it. So here we go. On the night of July 3rd, 1929, Benny Evangelist, not his real name, and his wife and four children were found brutally murdered in their Detroit home on St. Aubin Street and Mack Avenue, which is north and a little east of downtown. They were killed, every member of the family, by an axe. Oh, no. Yeah. So we, we're we're starting off with an axe murder. Yeah. You know, I would really hate to be hacked to death. I, I mean, that sounds like know. a really fucked up way. Because I don't think you would die. The last. Well, Say that. If you had to choose a way, that'd probably be the last. Except I feel like drowning would be a nightmare because you would know it's coming. Yeah. Or burning. Yeah, or burning. They're, they're all terrible. Yeah, they're anyway. all terrible. But I, don't, I feel like when the axe, you, you're not going to die in the first That's true. hack. Ooh, right. You know? Ooh. And it's probably like breaking your bones a little oh, bit. Oh, God. Ooh. You know, that's a headache. We lost we lost France with that comment there. Clitchy <laughs> has tuned out. So Bye, Clitchy. Clitchy doesn't like bloody murders. Okay. Evangelist's wife and his children were killed while they slept in their beds. 
he, the husband evangelist, was found nearly decapitated at his desk. No. That's not one stroke. At That's his it. Desk? At yeah, his at desk. His desk? We'll get into why he has a desk. Okay. Um, but but there's the conflicting reports about this. Some stories say that his head was almost cut off, but the United Press uh, says that it had been completely severed from his body and was placed on a chair chair near the bed in which uh, he and his his wife's kids were found. So whether it was cut off completely or not, he dead. It yeah. doesn't matter at that point, right? So obviously he was ruled out as a suspect. They're like, he doesn't have a head. He, he couldn't it's have killed the these people. It's always the husband unless his head's missing. Right. And I don't think you can self-axe your head off, right? You can't do that. Uh, I don't know. I, mean, I don't think really you'd have difficult. enough power I to do once. that. I remember that. That was like two years ago. You tried to cut your head off. It wasn't. Yeah, I don't think you could get enough power. Yeah, I feel like after one blow, you're you're you probably can't move your arms. That would be an awful way to do it to yourself. You probably faint after the first blow. That's true. Pass out. I have, and somebody who's fainted at the eye doctor, (laughs) like I couldn't kill myself with anything. Really, same. Okay, so Benny, when he's killed, is forty three. His wife santina is 36 their four children were eight five three and 18 months old i know and they were discovered by a neighbor so who who was benny evangelist uh he was born in 1885 in italy shout out to our non-existent italy listeners (laughs) his birth name was benjamin evangelista but he changed his name to 19 when he arrives in the U.S. Back in like the early 1900s, everyone pretty much changed their name when they moved here. True. Which is sad. Mm-hmm. So that's what he did. So two years later, he claims he starts b- receiving his visions from God. So he's 21 years old at this time. It's a bad sign. Totally bad sign. He publishes a four-volume Bible wow. called The Oldest History of the World Discovered by Occult Science. When I read that, I was really pissed off because that's the working title of my biography. <laughs> so now I have to go back to the drawing board rethink it. and rethink it. So he describes himself as a prophet, spiritual leader, and a mystic healer. Oh God. Yep. <laughs> yep. He's up there. No offense. But he's also a carpenter. He's also a what? A carpenter. So oh. I feel like one of those is probably accurate. Okay. You know. So Evangelist had constructed a bizarre apparatus in his basement that included nearly a dozen small wax figures depicting various celestial planets, which we will post. They're creepy. Creepy pictures of these puppets or whatever he calls them, wax figures. He also had a huge eye that was electrically lit up from the inside, which I was kind of impressed. It's 1929. This guy's MacGyvering the shit out of his house. Wait, he had an eye? Oh, yeah. it's like His eyeball? No, it's like this big, huge eye. Oh. (laughs) For his congregation, naturally. Is it all seeing? Huh? I said, is it all seeing? Like the all seeing eye? I'm sure they sing. They're uh, cult. like seeing, like, hello, I see you. Yeah, like an seeing. eye, like an eyeball. Okay. But they probably can't sing. I, I thought, thought you were saying he had like an artificial eye in his face that lit up. He could have. <laughs> I don't know. I can't tell you what Benny had going on. He may have had a, Does it blink? It could blink. I don't know. Why not? Um, so the apparatus served as an altar for his sermons. Uh, and was featured prominently in his healing rituals. Okay, would you guys, if this was 1929, would you go to him? I well, think I, I was just about to say, you know, I'm just going to take a leap of faith and just say, you know, I don't think he's legit. He could be a real healer. How do we know? No. 
So listen to this, though. He charged up to $10 for each healing in 1929. That's a lot. That's when you know it's not real. That's I'm like $1 billion dollars in yeah. 19, 2020, whatever the year this that's is. That's like some Botox. <laughs> it is. And so if you think about it, that's a large sum of money. And perhaps he made a few enemies from that. Mm-hmm. His clients were kind of all over the board. A lot of Italian immigrants went to him. He was known in that community. But he catered to, this is bad, the mentally and physically challenged. He's taken advantage of people. That's sad. That's yeah. not okay. He's taken advantage of people. So his methods range from religion, black magic, to prescribing herbal, herbal <laughs> medicine. Okay. He amounted several enemies, mostly those who believed they were being ripped off from his love potions. So, like, what's the going rate? How do you know what the going rate of a love potion is in 1929? They're like, $10 is too much. $8.50? I'll take it. I'll take it. It's more like seven twenty-five. Yeah. But then, like, he didn't charge taxes. So, you're getting, you're getting like, a 9% discount. That's true. If you know what I mean. Cash only. So, these are the suspects originally looked at. Uh, it could be somebody who's mad that they feel like they got ripped off. Also, like, how does love potions work? Do you put it in, do you, like... Oh, here's a cup of coffee. And then they're like, I have to go to the bathroom. And then you dump the potion in their cuff. No, cup. here's what you do. You, like get, a you get a mug. <laughs> like a, It's a 1929 yeah. roofie. Pour some coffee in it and add a little pumpkin spice. And that's some love potion that's right a there. Potion. According to Courtney. Yeah, that's Courtney's <laughs> yeah. love potion. Um, but I feel like if you're buying love potions, you don't have something to stand on to be like, I was ripped off. You believe in love potions. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. So... Some people also believe that there was a deranged stranger roaming the streets of Detroit who was simply looking to kill. So, a little backstory here. Detroit at the time, 1929, is the fourth largest city in America. It has more than one and a half million residents. Only Philly, Chicago, and New York City are larger at the time. And that's because um, the, the auto industry was huge at that point. And namely, Henry Ford would employ people who other other manufacturing companies and, and businesses around the country went, went and hire. So Henry Ford was known as hiring European immigrants, um, black Americans who were coming up from the South. So Detroit's just booming. It's becoming kind of this hodgepodge of, of people. Cool. So here we are. It's 1929. Our good old friend, Benny, he's 43 and he's healing the shit out of people at this point. You know, <laughs> he's just going to town. He has these creepy dolls. Uh, he's getting rich because ten dollars a pop is a lot of money. Did you just say dolls? Oh yeah, these are creepy dolls. dolls? It's like a Michigan dolls. Um, dolls. Okay, dolls. How do you say dolls? Courtney? Doll? Dolls. 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 You know what? This the story's not it's about not me. A dowel rod. It's the story's <laughs> not about me. Just wanted to clarify for listeners. So the night before the murders take place, evangelist had made a call to the watchman of a house that was being demolished. Back in the day, I think a watchman was basically like somebody in charge of a crew of a demolition. So he's contacted this person. He tells the watchman that he had purchased all the salvageable lumber from the wreck, which is a house, and he had arranged for the wood to to be picked up and delivered to his home. The plan was that evangelist would meet the truck the next morning to pay the delivery man. But they were murdered later that night, and the delivery men were a no-show. So how do they know not to show up? Ooh. See what I mean there? Dun, dun, dun. I'm winking at everybody. <laughs> so there was also no cash found on the home the following 
day of the murder. So one of the theories is that he's paid these people and they kill him and they move on. So police were never able to locate the name of the delivery company, but they suspect money to be a motive because how do they know not to show, right? So here's a story from the Associated Press from July 3rd, 1929, describing how he's found. Sitting before his desk, which also served as an altar. He's like, it's a desk, it's an altar. As you do. Right. His hands folded, though, as in prayer. The body of Benny Evangelist, mystic healer and religious fanatic. I like how they just say that. I like it's fact. Was found shortly before noon on Wednesday. The head lay on the floor beside the chair. The bodies of his wife and four children were found upstairs, their skulls crushed. Mm. So now we have skull crushing going on. It's escalating. So that makes me think like there's probably this crew, right? Because how do you kill a whole family? Yeah. And that's a lot of force. It's a lot of force. You would would hear people screaming, Screaming, I assume. Yeah. So so there were police are working on the theory that he was the victim of a second religious fanatic. So in Detroit at this time. There's just a slew of religious fanatics, you know, selling their love potions like it's freaking Coca-Cola. So um, Wayne County Coroner James Burgess commented in, the, in, in a newspaper article the following morning. This is the most unusual case. A single perverted maniac must have killed them, although it seems impossible that some of their screams would not have been heard. It does seem impossible. Yeah. But doesn't that seem like a great 1929 newspaper quote? A single perverted maniac must have killed them. <laughs> so like, they were killed the with an axe, though. Yeah. Well, that makes me think of like the Lizzie Borden murders because when Lizzie Borden or whoever, I know she was acquitted, but whoever killed her parents killed two of them in the house and none of them heard anybody scream, which makes me think if you hack somebody in the face, then you probably can't scream. That makes sense. That's a good point. That's so good if point. they're sleeping or whatever they were doing and you snuck up behind them or, you know, or whatever you did, if they were sleeping, you just whacked them in the face with an axe because you said their skulls were crushed. They Have you tried this before? You know. Jordan solving the crime. Back seen... in 92 <laughs> when I was three. 29, 1929. <laughs> okay. So a funeral was held on July 6th. So a few days afterward, a crowd of 3,000 residents packed the streets. That's like, wow, that's a rock that's concert. A that is. Yeah, I'm gonna. I know when I die, I'm gonna have like ten people there. No, this guy had three thousand. That's ins- that's intense. But you know, they were all like looky lose. You know, like mm-hmm. they didn't probably know this person. Um, police hoped they could find a suspect at the funeral, so they kind of staked it out. They arrested one man who quote was acting queerly with excited suspicion, which was pretty much me every Saturday night in my twenties, <laughs> right? So I would have been arrested in your twenties. Yeah, that's definitely still you. We're going to edit that part out. My mom is listening. Okay. (laughs) What up, Linda J? So this guy is, this guy is released shortly afterward. Um, So the search for the killer continues. Uh, Every police squad in Detroit, remember it's the fourth largest city. This would be like, I don't know, Philadelphia today, this going on, was ordered uh, to join in a citywide search for the killer. Um, Police initially investigated a connection to a murder of a mother and her three children two weeks that happened before but the connection did not did not pan out no trace of a weapon is found in the home i like how they say trace like i think you would see an axe right it's not like got killed with poison yeah um police did find bloody fingerprints on the door latch they released a one thousand dollar reward um for for more information a guy by the name of angelo dipoli 
butchered that, was arrested the day of the murder with bl- with a blood-covered knife, but police couldn't connect him to the family despite a neighbor saying that he was a frequent visitor at the home, which I kind of feel like back in the day, people probably had bloody knives all over their house. You know what I mean? Like they didn't kind of go to Walgreens, Walmart to find their dinner. They were probably killing that's, shit in the streets. Him, you could kill anybody. You could, because everything was so primitive. You could pre DNA. Yeah, you could butcher somebody, but because you have a farm with like pigs and shit, you could be butchering a pig and have all the knives sitting right there, and one of them could be the one you just off your family with, and we don't have a. Murder weapon here, you know, he's just out there filleting his cattle or pigs or whatever. <laughs> Should I get a divorce? I'm getting kind of worried <laughs> about the way he's talking. <laughs> um, so he and this guy, this this neighbor, he and another man were arrested at a home less than a mile away. The owner of the home said the axe hadn't been used in two years and couldn't cut butter. This is literally <laughs> what he told police. He scoffed at the idea that the axe was the murder weapon. I just love 1929 newspaper reporting. Yeah, Yeah, he scoffed at the idea. Um, So in March 1930, so six, seven, eight months later, everyone who's listening is like, that's not six months. You can't do math. (laughs) Um, The AP published a report with the headline, Eyewitness to Brutal Detroit Axe Sling Finally Turns Up. Does anyone want to guess what this eyewitness, who this eyewitness is? The milkman. He's a dog. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. He's a dog. <laughs> Fucking Lassie. It's always Lassie. It's always Lassie. So here's what the, here's what the um, AP wrote that day. The witness is a shaggy brown mongrel dog. No. Benji? Which it could be. <laughs> which belonged to the children of Benny Evangelist. So it's the family's dog. The animal disappeared at the time Evangelist and his wife and the four children were hacked to death. Well, yeah, that's why he disappeared. Yeah, the dog's like, like, I'm out. out of here. Or is the dog the killer? Oh, pot twist. The dog's not the killer. In the course of routine, of a routine um, kind of record search, the dog's license number, which they had back in the day. Um, the, the li- Yeah, there was like license, dog licenses, oh. but there was no record found. But then the day later, a woman reported that a dog with a 1929 license number had come to her home. (laughs) This is so sad. When she learned who had owned the animal, she decided not to adopt it. I know. Poor Lassie. I know. The dog didn't kill these people. I mean, what a weird... uh, I'm good. Um, Three years after the gruesome murders, a man nicknamed the real axe murderer, which I assume he put on like a... nickname? I assume he had it on a business card, you know. <laughs> Obviously. It must have been on his Tinder. It could have been on his Tinder. <laughs> always lead with that. The first Tinder account ever. Um, so this guy named Robert Harris, he confesses. Harris is a 44-year-old black man, also head of a cult with 100 people. So they're just cults. They're running wild. They're just cults all over the city. But I mean, 100 people in a cult is pretty impressive. He must, he must be believable. Cults were like the TikTok of the 20s. They were the TikTok of the 20s. <laughs> That's actually what's on TikTok's website i'm just aged myself is, do they have a website probably not okay i'm surprised you didn't say tic-tac <laughs> is tiktok banned now did trump ban tiktok i think it has like a it's no, i got on mine earlier you did okay know. so police are excited they believe they saw the crime but after investigating his claims they found he was lying like i don't know why you would maybe he thought he'd get street cred from his his like cult if he was like yeah i can murder these people but wouldn't that make you scared I don't know. I'd be scared. But cult people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. This is what I found interesting. Palm prints at the scene cleared him. So they actually had like fingerprinting oh. and 
conference back then. So other people suspect a disgruntled cult member killed them or members of a rival congregation anxious to silence his heretical teachings. So that's one theory is like a legit church was like, we got to kill this guy. He's taking our, our people. But I don't feel like that's really Jesus-like, right? Definitely not. You know what I mean? I'll say no. Um, others still believe the deadly act was the work of a random killer. Um, this theory is that perhaps a violent man passed through the area and he'd heard about the spiritual leader who had several several hundred dollars in cash on hand. Kind of makes sense. More of a robbery situation. Yeah. You know what I mean? Despite the speculation and leads from time to time, the case today remains unsolved. Um, after nearly 90 years, no one knows who entered the home, um, making the murders one of the oldest and most brutal cases in Detroit history. So this, it's unsolved. Um, that makes me sad. I know. Yeah. So all those kids were killed too. Same to babies. Mm-hmm. To me, it seems like it has to be... Um, the hired men. The hired men. Yeah. Because it makes, like, why didn't they show up? They, right. They had to have known. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. Um, so this house was demolished in the mid-1940s. So right now, all, all that's there is just a space of grass. I looked it up, and it's about 10 miles from my mom's house. No way. Yeah, which we should totally visit next oh, time. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. this is why. Um, they Many say the land where the family lived uh, is haunted. There have been reports of a headless man seen wandering around along with the disembodied disembodied voices and screams. So some people think this is his punishment for kind of ripping off all those people and faking that he was like a healer. Wow. Yeah, his punishment is to be a ghost and just kind of wander around. Um, There's a book titled Detroit Occult Murders. Um, So if you're interested, check that out. And it includes the other... (laughs) kind of cult murders between 1929 and 1931. They're all around St. Albans Street. Really? Yeah. All this so little area. Like it's, like two, it's like a thing. It's like yeah. Detroit, yeah, yeah it's like a two block area. Um, I don't know. Do you guys, have you heard of the app Goodreads? Yes. So Goodreads is basically a social media app for readers where you can post like what you're reading, people can comment and that kind of thing. Um, I found an entry for his creepy Bible he wrote oh. in 1927. Um, it has one review. It's very short. It says, um, this book is insane. <laughs> but they, they did give it a three out of five stars. Oh. Yeah. So they're like, it's crazy. But you know what? I've read, I've read worse. I feel like we need to order it. I yeah. think we do. That's, we that's exactly what I said when I read Homebody by Joanna Gaines. <laughs> there, yeah. I think he's related to that's Joanna what Gaines. Was. <laughs> um, what I also thought was funny is, you know, on Goodreads, you can click on like the author Two people are following Benny Evangelist. Oh, I don't. I don't think he's updating anytime soon. But there's people. There's two people who are like, I want to know case. what Benny's up to. So that is the story of Benny Evangelist, our guy. Wow, I know. Wow, yeah. exciting. I did not know about that. One. I didn't either. And but my mom lit up when I when I mentioned it to her. But then she called it the Saint Auburn 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 Street. It's close. So it's close. Maybe it's, it's around the corner. Yeah. So that's the end of that story. But yeah, really creepy. I was so excited when I saw axes and love potions and all that kind of stuff. Right up your alley. Right up my alley. I love it. Yeah. Good job. Yay, Chad. Thank you. Thank you. Woot. First three. And by the way, for our France listener, Detroit was founded by the French. So there you go. Latchy. Clitchy. Whatever. Clitchy. France, we love Latchy. All right. So our second story is about the one. The only, the iconic, 
Marilyn Monroe. Ooh. Oh my God, I love Marilyn Monroe. Me too. So we're going to be talking about the conspiracy theories around Marilyn Monroe's death. Everyone thinks that they know what they are, but it's crazier than what you think. But before we get into that, you really have to know who she was as a person, what she went through that kind of made all of us come to fruition. So Marilyn was born on July 1st, 1926. Um, her name, her given name is Norma Jean Mortensen. So Mortensen was her mother's previous husband, not Marilyn's biological father. Marilyn's mom's name was Gladys Monroe Baker. So Gladys was a flapper. It was the 20s after all. And she was also a film cutter. So like editing movies in Hollywood. So Marilyn never knew her father. She did eventually find out who he was and reached out to him later in her life. And he basically wanted nothing to do with her, which is so sad. Can I say something about yeah. this picture? Doesn't he look like the the neighborhood watch picture you see in neighborhoods oh my gosh, he does. where he's like this don't totally don't like, rob us does. what's that he? like mcgruff like tough on crime he does yeah he looks totally a little McGruff. like dick tracy Ooh, yeah. he does this is this has to be like a movie picture right was well, he an actor he wasn't an actor but he was marilyn Monroe's mom's boss so he was in the hollywood film industry but he wasn't an actor he helped with film cutting and editing movies <laughs> he looks like an asshole <laughs> he kind of does. I mean, is he smoking in his picture? He, I think it's just an old picture. Yeah. They didn't have Basically, Photoshop. He knocked up Norma Jean's mom and was like, "Peace, don't want to have anything to do with this." So, so he was typical. a real quality guy. So Gladys couldn't take care of Marilyn. She was struggling to survive on her own. This is right before the Great Depression, and um, she placed Marilyn with a family who could take care of her. And they were, by all accounts, really good to Marilyn, but super strict religious. Um, wouldn't let her go to the movies, nothing like that. Um, but in 1933, her mother Gladys was able to save up enough money to buy a little house in Hollywood, and it was really close to where the Hollywood Bowl is now. And she brought Norma Jean to live with her there. So everything was good, and they were happy. But eventually, Gladys, you know, she started struggling financially. It was the Depression, after all. She just couldn't afford to keep up with the house. So they started renting out rooms to boarders. Well, with all the stress and the pressure of everything, Essentially, Gladys had a mental breakdown, um, and she was hospitalized, and they diagnosed her officially as being a paranoid schizophrenic. So that's serious. So she was admitted right. and stayed in the hospital and lost her privileges of um, taking care of Marilyn. Gladys's best friend, Grace, kind of stepped in, oversaw Marilyn, and she would find families to place her with. Um, most of them were pretty good. A couple of them even totally fell in love with Marilyn and wanted to adopt her, bring her into her family. But her mom, Gladys, just didn't want her to be adopted, which is kind of sad because she could have, you know, really been in a loving, supportive family. But It would have changed her whole life. It would have changed yeah. everything. But her mom just could not let go of the rights, even though she wasn't present in her life. When Norma Jean was eight, year, eight years old, sadly, in one of the homes that she was in, she was molested. And when she went to the woman of the house to tell what had happened to her, the woman didn't believe her. And she believed the man instead. And she told Marilyn, you know, you must be wrong. This can't be true. He's such a good man. Ugh. It was just devastating. You know, people wouldn't listen to a child back then. And now. Yeah, no. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, so Norma kept it quiet. She, you know, dealt with it and moved on. And in 1935, Grace, her mom's friend, ended up getting married to a man named Erwin Doc Goddard. He went by Doc. 
So she was like, hey, I'm married. I have some support. I want Norma Jean to come live with us. So she went to live with them. Everything seemed great. Norma was happy because she was with someone that she knew. But sadly, unfortunately, Doc decided that he was going to molest her as well. I fucking knew it. Anybody with the name Irwin is, <laughs> they're not good. And he's not a doctor, right? He is not I a doctor. It. I'm going to change my name to Doc. Doc <laughs> no. Revich and see no, if no. I can get away with it. Can I operate you I on you? On you? On you? I'm a doctor. Did I say on you three times? Yes. <laughs> I got stuck in the on you cycle. So Grace, instead of kicking the shit out of her husband and telling him, you know, to hit the road, she ends up taking Marilyn back to an orphanage. So I know, right? Like a return, like a Black yeah, Friday return. Like, exactly. So for the next several years of her life, she was in and out of from the orphanage and other foster homes, and she was abused a lot and just really devastating, sad story. So Marilyn was a really shy little girl. She had obviously lots of insecurities, fears of abandonment. She had really bad night terrors, anxiety, depression, and she even had a stutter, which most people don't know. And she actually fought all of those things for the rest of her life. So a lot of people don't know she had a stutter, but look what she came through, you know? She was in and out. It was between 11 or 12 foster homes. Isn't that crazy? That's a lot. Yeah. And then the Mm. orphanage in between all of those times. So in 1941, Marilyn went to live with Grace and good old Doc again. But this time, Doc had two daughters who was staying with them from a previous marriage. So Grace felt like he wouldn't try anything, I guess, because his own daughters were around. I don't know. Messed up. I know. That's the way I would have thought about it, too. I mean, logical. The odds are that my child won't be molested. So I'm just going to go for it, right? The whole thing is just disturbing. Yeah. So Marilyn luckily wasn't there very long because Doc actually got offered a job in West Virginia. So they were going to move out and they literally couldn't afford financially to take her with them. So Marilyn was just a few days away from being 16 and she had two choices. She could either go back to the orphanage and live through hell or she could get married and legally become an adult and live with her spouse. So Grace fixed her up with her next door neighbor, who was a guy named Jim Doherty. He was 21 and she was 16. Just a few days after she turned 16, they got so married. Young. Yeah. By all accounts, they actually, you know, had a good time together. It wasn't a bad deal. They were good friends before they actually got married and they had fun. And for two years, everything was great. And then Jim enlisted in the war. So he got shipped off to the Pacific as a merchant marine. So Marilyn became like real life Rosie the Riveter. She got a job in a factory and it's called the Radio Plane Munitions Factory. So uh, they sent a photographer to photograph all the women who were working, supporting the war effort. And he obviously just totally was smitten with Marilyn. She was working the camera, rocking it. She'd never done a photo shoot in her life, but he just was like, oh my gosh, she's shining through this lens. So Marilyn ended up becoming a full-time model, signing with an agency. In 1946, she was getting a lot of attention. She'd actually been on the cover of 33 magazines, and Fox gave her a screen test. So this is where her her name changed. So Fox came up with the name Marilyn, and she came up with the name Monroe because it was her mother's maiden name. She wanted kind of still a piece of her to be in her name. So Marilyn Monroe was born, 20th Century Fox. That's how I came up with Chad Previch. It's oh. not my real name. Who are you signed with? <laughs> um, Mo- Model Inc. Oh, yeah, I know Model that one. Inc. I know that one. So her husband, Jim, wasn't exactly thrilled. He was, you know, still off at war in the Pacific. And it's funny, he was interviewed and said that, you know, at one point, one of his friends said, hey, isn't this your wife? Like, she's in this magazine that the guys are looking at. So he wasn't 
excited about it. And they were reading for the articles. Uh, always. Mm-hmm. So when Jim got back from war, as with most men and women, you know, as the guys were away, the women were getting jobs and starting careers and finding fulfillment in that. And when the guys came home, they wanted the women to stay home. Marilyn was not interested in that. She really wanted to pursue acting. And so unfortunately, they got a divorce. So her contract with Fox ended, but she was signed, picked up by Columbia, and she starred in her first movie ever. It's called Ladies of the Chorus. It was actually a B movie, but she was still the lead, so it was a big deal for her career. But her contract was coming up at the end, and Harry Cohen, who was like the bigwig exec of um, Columbia, he calls her into his office, and he's like, hey, you want to come out with me and go with me on my yacht overnight? And so, you know, people think of Marilyn. They're like, oh, she's a dumb, sexy blonde. She slept her way to the top. That's how she became famous. But she was actually a really smart businesswoman. And her response to Harry was, oh, I would love to. I've always wanted to meet your wife. So he mm-hmm. was very upset because obviously he wasn't bringing his wife. You know, I've used the yacht trick many times to pick up men. And it just doesn't work. I, I feel like. Really? Yeah, I feel like it's more of a 1940s thing at this point. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. okay. And I also pronounce it yacked. So they oh, yeah. they know I'm faking. <laughs> Get off from the wrong side. Right. Clinchy. Clinchy. So he was really furious, so furious that he ended her contract and let her go. Oh, wow. I know. So, Rude. But eventually she met another guy. His name was Johnny Hyde. He was 30 years older than her. But he was the vice president of William Morris Agency, which was and still is one of the biggest talent agencies in Hollywood. So even though he was 30 years older than her, he was totally in love with her, as were all men that saw her. But he really, you know, genuinely loved her. He thought she was talented. He thought she was going to be, you know, the the next big thing. And he really supported her, got her name out there. He even left his wife for her. But unfortunately, Marilyn didn't have feelings for him in that way. She would tell him, you know, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. So he would propose to her all the time and she would just say, I'm sorry. Isn't that sad? Poor Johnny. Jordan and I proposed to you like five times before you finally said yes. Are you serious? No. (laughs) He said yes the first time. Hello, look at this. Obviously. So remind me. (laughs) Johnny was able to help Marilyn get into two films that were really key. The first one was All About Eve, which starred um, Betty Davis. And then the other one was... Star Wars. Yes, you guessed it. Yes. The Asphalt Jungle. So these two movies, even though her roles were pretty small, they ended up being the biggest films of the year. And they were both nominated for Academy Awards. They broke records. So people were talking about these movies, these specific two, and she was in both of them. So people were like, who's that blonde? So Marilyn got signed for seven years with 20th Century Fox. And from that point on, she was a legend and icon. By 1954, she was a huge star. She had been in all the movies that you know. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them. And she wanted more challenging roles. Like I said, a lot of people think she was just this dumb, sexy blonde because that's who she played in the movies. But nothing could be further from who she really was. So she wanted, you know, she wanted to be a comedian. She wanted to be in dramas. She wanted the challenge. And unfortunately, the studio system, they just weren't interested in developing artists. It was like a formula. Like, hey, you were the dumb, sexy blonde here. We made all this money. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. So 20th Century Fox, um, they cast her in another typical film. And Marilyn flat out refused. Flat out refused. She just wouldn't show up to set. So Fox suspended her contract. And Marilyn had been dating Joe DiMaggio for about a year. He was the biggest, most famous athlete of the day. He was a Yankee um, player, and he was basically her equivalent in the sports world. So she was like, 
the it girl. He was the it guy. They were like Brad and Jen, you know, America's Except sweetheart. she's way hotter. Yeah, I was going to say, he's not very attractive. Mm-mm. Well, Marilyn didn't really care about looks. You know, she she liked men who <laughs> that's were... That's good. Courtney said, that's good. <laughs> you too. <laughs> Marilyn went after knowledge. She liked people who were educated Ugh. and cultured and... Um, Mama always told me, date the nerd. Yeah, because he'll the be nerd. somebody's boss. Marry the nerd. But Ben's not a nerd. Oh, he totally is. <laughs> Sorry, babe. Love you. Oh, Ben's a nerd. He's such I a love nerd. Ben. I think so. But he's so cute. Oh, I know. He is he's cute. cute. Ben's super nerd. cute. I just want to pinch his cheeks every time I see him. <laughs> he so always sweet. comes and gives me a hug. Oh, yeah, he's he so is sweet. such a good guy. He gives you a hug? Oh. <laughs> Drama. Watch out, Ben. Chad's coming for you. I love you, Ben. <laughs> I do, too. So since her contract had been suspended, she had some time on her hands and Joe said, hey, let's get married. I have to go to Tokyo. We can make it our honeymoon. So that's what they did. It took over the press. They were on the cover of everything. And while they were there, the U.S. government asked her to make a stop in um, Korea, sing for the troops who were there. So Marilyn went to Korea. She performed for the troops and they just loved her. It was her first time ever doing like a live performance and it was a hit. Again, she was all over the magazines and it really just showed that she had totally undeniable star power. Like she was it. So Fox finally came to their senses and they settled with her and they even promised her a $100,000 bonus, which was a really big deal in the 50s, especially for a woman. That's like a thousand Bennies of Bennies creepy dolls, right? (laughs) Those things that he was $10 a pop. Yeah. 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 Sounds about right. So Joe was just totally in love with Marilyn. He would, for the rest of his life, say that she was the love of his life. He was very devoted to her, but he just had a real struggle sharing her with um, fame, with, you know, audiences, paparazzi. Even though he was famous in his own right, Marilyn was just this next level. And he thought, you know, hey, if we get married, she's probably going to quit acting. She'll stay at home. We'll have this quiet little family. He came from a traditional Catholic immigrant family from Italy. So that was the furthest thing from what Marilyn wanted to do. Like, she was all about acting. She wanted to be successful. She wanted to have a career. So they struggled, and they started butting heads a lot. And the famous scene, or the famous photo, um, of Marilyn standing over the subway grate with her skirt blowing up. It's in your notes if you want to see it. Don't try that if it's a manhole cover, because it hurts. (laughs) Fuck, that's hot. So they filmed that scene in New York City, really on the streets, and hundreds of people came to see Marilyn Monroe. Well, Joe was on set. Not only was he furious that her underwear was going to be shown in this movie, but he was mortified that all these men had showed up to see his wife, you know, in that sort of a position. So people who were there said he was shaking. He was so mad. And then he left. He completely left the set. Well... When Marilyn went home and they spoke about it, they got in a really big fight and it actually escalated to the point where he hit her. And that was not it. okay. That yeah, is not no. okay. No, not at all. So she basically was done. She just didn't think he would ever trust her. She didn't think he could share her with the world and she wasn't going to be abused. To Joe's credit, he was... Um, Joe. I like her like, to Joe, my boy Joe. <laughs> Dear sweet Joe. No. I don't condone domestic abuse 
at all in any way, shape, or form. It's terrible. But he really did, you know, try to work on himself after they were divorced. And he was completely heartbroken and losing her. Um, eventually, you know, when she did pass, he arranged her funeral. He paid for everything. And he placed a 20-year order to have six long stem roses sent to her grave three times a week. Wow. Yeah. Wait, sh- she's dead? <laughs> in real I mean, life. 20 years? In 20 years. <laughs> So even his last words on his deathbed were, at least I'll get to see Marilyn again. Wow. You know. No, I refuse to go on because he's a little bit like a possessive. It's it's like a it's a hard it's a hard pill to swallow. So Fox gave her another role as a dumb blonde, and again Marilyn refused, and so they pulled their hundred thousand dollar bonus. And when they did that, they broke their contract. So Marilyn was free to do whatever she wanted. So she hit the road and went to New York, and she actually created her own production company, Marilyn Monroe Productions, which was literally unheard of. No one had ever done this before, especially a woman. So she was really paving the way for women. That's incredible. I, I, I had no idea. That. Yeah, yeah. In 1956, she married author and playwright Arthur Miller, and she was totally infatuated with him. Again, a really smart, really talented, really successful man. She was blown away with his sophistication and just really impressed by him. But unfortunately, she quickly found out he did not see that in her, which was important to her. About two months after their wedding, she found an open notebook that he had left. He had just written in, and he referred to her as being childish and demanding and wondering why he ever even married her in the first place. So she was totally devastated. So Arthur wrote The Misfits, which he said he wrote about Marilyn, but he actually wrote it years before they were ever even together. But he did take from really sensitive, hard parts of Marilyn's life and inserted it into the story. And not only did he do that, he wanted Marilyn to star in it as a film. And so she felt used once again, this, you know, her husband was using her to to sell those tickets (laughs) to market this film and make it a success. But unfortunately, it was a big flop and they just couldn't reconcile and they got a divorce after being married for four years. So Marilyn, she was really depressed. She was devastated. This movie didn't go over. She was getting older, her third divorce in a really dark place. And so her psychiatrist was concerned and decided, you know, hey, Marilyn, I think you need to go to a hospital, get some rest, get some, you know, real intensive help and then come out, you know, better on the other side. So Marilyn agreed. She's like, awesome. I'm going to go rest up, come out better than ever. But when she got there, she was really surprised because she was actually committed to a mental institution for, quote, the dangerously insane. That's a bait and switch. You know, it's like going <laughs> to the I've store, you want, you want a Snickers and they don't have, they have like the off brand. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Multiplied by a thousand. By a thousand. So they gave her electric shock treatments. Whoa. That's they, never good. They put her in straight jackets. It was extremely scary for her. That's she said she intense. felt like a prisoner. She was treated like an animal. And she knew she wasn't insane because she wasn't insane. But no one would really even listen to her. They just kept her drugged. So a nurse finally had sympathy and got a telephone to her so Marilyn could make a call. Well, Marilyn calls Joe, Joe DiMaggio. He immediately gets on a plane, flies to New York, comes into the hospital. They're not married. You know, he has no legal recourse in any way. But he, they said that he just came in there. He said, I'm going to tear this place down brick to brick unless, until you give me Marilyn. So they did. They released her to Joe, and he got her wow. out of there. And so for the rest of her life, they would kind of have an on-again, off-again thing. But she would always look to him and see him as her protector. So he totally fucked up in the beginning, but he's trying to make up for it. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, Joe. <laughs> Good old Joe. Now I'm torn about Joe. I know. It's a very conflicting thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was going to say people can change. I mean, I just, I mean, they can. But I think but when, you, when you grow, you're changing. Yeah. <laughs> but do I don't think really so. Change? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I feel like you stay the same. It's a passionate love affair. So after Joe got Marilyn out of the hospital, she moved back to L.A. It was 1961, and she actually started dating Frank Sinatra. And he was even going to... <laughs> you know, good old blue eyes. <laughs> he was going to propose to Marilyn, but his attorney actually talked him out of it, which Whoa. is like... Okay, rich and famous people are weird, right? right? Who Seriously. goes to their attorney? My attorney tried talking me out of Mary jo- and Jordan, and I was like, I love him. <laughs> attorney. Attorney. <laughs> So obviously he didn't propose to her, but they, so they kind of had like a friends with benefits situation for that. What does that mean? (laughs) Look it up. Google that. Google that. (laughs) So you get a special 401k. (laughs) Tax free. (laughs) So Frank Sinatra brought like a new crowd into Marilyn's life and to her close circle. He had really strong ties to the mafia. Um, He had a, pretty close relationship with a man named Sam Giancana, Ooh, who we've got a good. picture of. He was a Chicago mob boss and just really a really bad guy. So Frank was really good friends also with Peter Lawford, who was a member of the Rat Pack. And he was also married to Patricia Kennedy. Enter the Kennedy family. So Patricia was JFK's sister. So obviously JFK was around this group too. And the two started a relationship. After he was elected president, he would actually take her on trips and she would wear like a dark wig so no one would know that she was Marilyn Monroe and she would introduce herself as his secretary and with a different name. And she even had a direct line to his phone at the White House. Isn't that crazy? Like his iPhone? Exactly. <laughs> when you have someone's iPhone number, it's you getting know serious. It's real. So in 1962, Marilyn also met Robert Kennedy, who will, who was referred to as Bobby a lot. So I'm going to call him Bobby. Um, They met at a party at Patricia's house, his sister, and they would meet up there quite frequently from then on. Did they have like a book club? Is that what this was about? that is exactly what it was. So Marilyn, again, was fascinated with Bobby because of his knowledge, his education, and he was trying to make a change in the world, civil rights, all of these things. And so she was just fascinated by him and she felt like she was, you know, a little out of her wits and so she would write down the topics that he would talk about because she'd want to go home and research them and be able to have an educated conversation when they came back together so this brings up her diary that she wrote all of this in it ended up containing extremely sensitive information because jfk and bobby both were very open with her told her national secrets she knew things like that the bay of pigs was going to be invaded she knew that they had a plan to assassinate fidel castro And she also knew about the mafia helping to get JFK elected. So not things that they wanted out in the public. So Marilyn ends up taking a trip to Mexico and she's going to all these, you know, film film parties, people who are working in the movie industry. And some of them were being surveyed by the FBI because they had communist ties. Being a communist in this time was a big no-no. So word got back to J. Edgar Hoover that Marilyn was talking to these people and some of her conversations were overheard and he was not excited to know that she knew a lot of information that she shouldn't. J. Edgar Hoover took this to JFK and Marilyn had already committed to singing to the president at his birthday, Happy Birthday, the infamous song. Jordan, can you cover that for us real quickly? Happy birthday, Mr. President. I don't know what that was. 
God, that was Grammy Award winning material. What you just did, I just looked, I Googled it. It has three Grammy nominations already. So Robert Kennedy tried to talk Marilyn out of doing this, but she was set on doing it. Obviously, we all know that she did. The dress was so tight, she had to be sewn into it. But five days after she sang to the president, her phone number, the direct line to the to JFK was cut. So even though her relationship with JFK was over at this point, she still kept seeing Bobby. And it wasn't long until the FBI was notified by, quote, a private informant that Marilyn was aware of atomic bomb testing being done in Nevada. Mm. Hmm. So once again, J. Edgar Hoover, he went to Bobby this time. He said, hey, why does she know all this? She can't know all of this. So Bobby cut ties with Marilyn, and he didn't even tell her he had his brother-in-law, Peter Lawford, do it. So Marilyn was devastated, really hurt, because while her affair with JFK is famous, she really is said to have loved Bobby. He told her he was going to leave his wife for her. She really loved him genuinely, so she was just devastated. Marilyn had been seeing, um, she'd always been seeing psychiatrists, but at this point she was seeing a man named Dr. Ralph Greenson, which we'll put a picture in. He looks so bored with his life <laughs> in this picture bored. he's like i hate this like, i drew this weird picture behind me it's of my daughter but i can't draw i'm bored i was like he's yeah, like was this like, is me is being Marilyn's psychiatrist <laughs> <laughs> so dr greenson and Marilyn crossed many doctor patient boundaries and their relationship as far as doctor friend just was really blurred he um Helped her find her house, which was really close to his. She would see him multiple times a week. She'd stay for dinner after their appointments and eat dinner with his family. And a lot of people say that Dr. Greenson was actually in love with Marilyn and that they had sexual relationship. Other people say he was more like a really controlling father. Regardless, he knew all about the men in her life, including JFK. And this is really weird. So he hired a woman named Eunice Murray to be her housekeeper. But what Marilyn didn't know is that Eunice wasn't just a housekeeper. She was actually a psychiatric nurse and really good friends with Dr. Greenson. Yeah, strange, creepy. Yeah, she looks like a psychiatric nurse. She does look like a psychiatric nurse. Doesn't she? She When I was looking at the pictures, I was like, she's not a housekeeper. She's up. Eunice has a secret. (laughs) Eunice has a secret. She looks like... You know, you want your fruit cut up, and she's over here thinking, oh, why does she want her fruit cut up like that? She wants it diced. She's like, only psychopaths like watermelon in 1962. (laughs) So at this time, a really popular drug for anxiety and insomnia was Nembutal. Uh, It was a drug that she was prescribed by Dr. Greenson and also her physician doctor. And what's crazy is this drug today is used as an anesthetic. It's used for euthanasia and it's used for capital punishment. Wow. Jeez. Some heavy shit. That's crazy. Several of Marilyn's friends said she was becoming more and more paranoid around this time. She thought that her phone was tapped and that people were watching her. And what's really crazy is she was 100% correct. So the FBI, the CIA, Sam Giancana, the Chicago mob boss, Jimmy Hoffa, who was a labor union leader, Peter Lawford and the Kennedys, as well as 20th Century Fox, were all doing surveillance on her at the same wow. time. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Homegirl was not paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> and Elon Musk was as well. I feel like if that Fucking many people are... I mean, you would you would know something's going on if right. like, that many people are surveillance. How me. scary. You're like, what the heck? I keep seeing these same, like, cars or whatever. Yeah, or, like, or something. seeing, like, a weird device in your house yeah, or something. Or like, yeah. yeah, yeah, like the vacuum cleaner van had been out parked in for a week, and she <laughs> was like, I left. think something's up. 
So Marilyn herself, she hired a private investigator to add a recorder to her phone because she wanted to have record of the truth, what mm-hmm. was really going on in her life. So get ready to be blown away. The very same man that Marilyn hired to tap her own phone had already been at her house for several of these other people to tap her phone. Oh, wow. Marilyn. So there were multiple bugs in her house oh. from one man for multiple people. She needs an exterminator Jeez. at this point in the story. <laughs> She's to get rid of all those bugs. <laughs> so Marilyn was filming a movie called Something's Gotta Give at this time, and she had missed a lot of days because she had a sinus infection, and she also missed from going to the president's birthday. So the studio wasn't exactly happy with her, and she came down with another sinus infection, so the studio freaked out. And they fired her and they sued her for, I read anywhere from 150 to $750,000. Wow. Right. That's a lot of money back That's then. That's $250,000. in today's money. <laughs> so the studio started sending out press releases around town that Marilyn struggled with mental illness, that she was awful on set, that she couldn't act anymore. She was getting old and losing it. She was just a drunk. And they're just trying to discredit her and justify their reasoning for firing her. And it's just totally uncalled for a reaction for needing a few sick days. Like, I know it's expensive being in Hollywood, but you're allowed to be a human being. You know what I love about 2020 is that you, those things, like, I feel help you push a movie. Like, if you struggle, yes, like, people want to root they for you nowadays. Yeah. yeah. So I yeah. think that's, you know what, 1963, you suck. 62. 62, same thing. That was the year my mom was born. Well, that was good. <laughs> So what's crazy is you can actually go on YouTube now, search for Something's Gotta Give, and you can see film footage from her on set. She's totally fine, totally sober, totally on it, doing multiple takes. Like, she's not anywhere near what they were describing to the press at this time. They're just trying to discredit her. So Marilyn fired back, and she did interviews with Life Magazine, Cosmopolitan, and Vogue. And all the A-list celebrities, especially actresses, came to her aid. She was always pitted against Elizabeth Taylor because, you know, Marilyn was the beautiful blonde. Elizabeth was the beautiful brunette. So Elizabeth was filming Cleopatra during this time. And the studio was doing the same thing to her. She was getting sick. They were threatening to fire her. So she calls up Marilyn. She's like, hey, literally anything you need, I've got your back. We're in this together. So it really brought a lot of the women together, which is awesome. They were the first Spice Girls. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know what you mean. Even her co-star on on the movie was Dean Martin, the musician and actor, and he refused to make the movie without Marilyn. He said, I signed up to make a movie with Marilyn Monroe and no one else. I know, right? That's good. So once again, Marilyn's proving her star power. She's the biggest star in the world. And once again, Fox comes to their senses. They rehired her and they also improved her contract. So she was super pumped, really happy. They were going to start refilming the movie. So this comes to the last weekend of her life. It's July 28th, 1962. Frank Sinatra invited her out to his resort in Lake Tahoe. It's called Cal Neva Lodge. This is like right on the border of California and Nevada. So they had casinos on the Nevada side and they had like bars and a lodge on the California side. And they had like a stage where the Rat Pack would perform and other musicians. So she went expecting it to just be like this fun, relaxing weekend with her friends. But Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, Sam Giancana, the Chicago mob boss who had a really close relationship with Frank Sinatra, he arranged for Frank to also invite the Kennedys that weekend. So according to a man named Gianni Russo, who was an actor, and at that time he was an employee of another mob boss, Frank Costello, who was there for the whole weekend, he says that 
Marilyn's room was wired with cameras and that Giancana intended to catch the Kennedys in the act with Marilyn. So that was like the big plan for the weekend. What a bunch of creepers. Right? Mm -hmm. So Giancana was hating on the Kennedys because even though he helped JFK get elected, Bobby, now that he was appointed, was big against crime. He was coming after the mob. So they kind of switched their position and they wanted to get rid of the Kennedys now. So he saw his Marilyn's relationship with them as, you know, something he could use to get what he wanted. Well, the Kennedys ended up not coming. And when Marilyn found out about Giancana's plan, obviously she was completely furious and she was just done. She was done with Frank, the mafia, the Kennedys, like the whole thing. She just felt like she was a piece of meat that they were passing around. She wasn't going to have it anymore. But unfortunately, she gave in to her vices and she did drink a lot that night. She even called Joe DiMaggio to come get her. And for some reason this time he didn't, which really makes me sad. I think he was just probably upset that she was with them at all. He didn't yeah. like this crowd and probably mad at her for going. But what's really disturbing is that night, um, Marilyn ended up being drugged and raped by several of the men in the mob, including Sam Giancana. She even overdosed during this and they had to revive her. Um, Photos were taken and Frank Sinatra, he took the camera, had the film developed, but when he got it back, he destroyed it. He burned everything. Wait, did he know what was on the camera when he, before he developed it? Yes. Oh. Apparently. He didn't know what they were doing, what they were going to do to her, but he, he, he took the camera in her defense. He didn't want it to be in the hands okay, of anyone gotcha. else. So his intention was to take the camera, burn everything. I was about to delete all my songs from <laughs> Frank on my iCloud. Right. Okay. So August 4th. Um, the CIA actually documents that Marilyn had been calling Bobby Kennedy several times this day. She really wanted to have like one last conversation and get closure. And he wasn't taking her calls. He wasn't returning them. So she was pissed. She was furious. And she calls Peter Lawford, his brother-in-law. And she says, if Bobby doesn't come to see me, then he's going to see me on Monday at a press conference. And I'm telling the world everything. So this is the last day of Marilyn's life. And this is the official story of what happened that day, August 4th, 1962. So something happened to worry her housekeeper, good old Eunice, um, because she calls Dr. Greenson and she asks him to come over. And this is around five o'clock. So Dr. Greenson talks with Marilyn alone in her room for a while. And then he comes out and asks Eunice to spend the night, keep an eye on Marilyn, which isn't something he had done before. Or if he had, it wasn't like a frequent thing that Eunice did. So he left around 7 o'clock. So at 7.30, Marilyn got a call from Joe DiMaggio's son, Joe Jr. She had always had like really good relationship with all her stepchildren. And he was telling her about a relationship he had been in. And it was a really good conversation. And he says that Marilyn was completely fine the whole time. You know, totally normal. She was even like so upbeat about the conversation that she called Dr. Greenson to let him know like how good of a convo it was and she was feeling better. So Peter Lawford claims that he received a call from Marilyn at 7.30 where she was very depressed and slurring her words. So this would have been the same time that she's talking to Joe Jr. He says that she said to him, quote, say goodbye to Bobby and say goodbye to Pat say goodbye to the president and say goodbye to yourself because you're a nice guy. And then the line goes silent. He tries to, you know, get her to come back on the line and and nothing. He tries calling and he can't get through. So what's interesting about this is 
Peter was actually having a dinner party that night, and guests remember him being on the phone, but they don't remember him seeming upset or concerned or like it was a big deal. They say that he actually was the one to call Marilyn trying to get her to come over for the dinner party. So Uh some conflicting Uh stories here. So after this, around eight or nine, um, Marilyn called another friend who was actually her masseuse that lived in New York City. And he said that she was, again, completely fine. They talked about her upcoming trip to New York the next week, totally normal, making plans. After this, she calls her hairdresser. Now, he says that she seemed not drugged, but that she seemed really scared. And she told him that Bobby Kennedy and Peter Lawford had been at her house that day and had threatened her. And they decided they would talk about the details the next morning because it was getting late. So her hairdresser kind of always regretted not getting Mm -hmm. the dirt. After this, she calls another friend, Jean Carmen, who was an actress, and she said that Marilyn sounded tired, and she also said that Marilyn sounded scared too, but that she wasn't slurring her words or anything like that. And Marilyn asked Jean to come over to spend the night at her house, but Jean was too tired and turned her down. Eunice Murray, the housekeeper slash psychiatric nurse, she first told police that she woke up at midnight to use the restroom and she saw a light coming from under Marilyn's door and that just kind of alarmed her. So she knocked on the door, didn't get a response. She tried the door, but it was locked. So she was kind of freaking out and she calls Dr. Greenson. Now, what's interesting to note here is Eunice's bedroom had its own bathroom, so it's weird that she would leave her room to go to another restroom. Also, Marilyn had, hadn't been in this house very long, and they'd recently put in new carpet that was really, really thick and, like, really plush, so you couldn't see light from under the door. Ooh, someone's lying. Right? Hours after telling her story to police, Eunice ended up changing it by saying that she actually woke up at 3 a.m. instead of midnight. So that'll come back around later. So when Dr. Greenson arrived, he went to Marilyn's bedroom window and he saw her unconscious and she was holding a phone. So he broke the window and realized that Marilyn was dead. So Sergeant Clement, Sergeant Jack Clemens received a call at 425 a.m. from Marilyn's doctor, her physician, Dr. Engelberg. And Dr. Greenson told Sergeant Clemens when he got here, got there that they had waited so long to call the police because they needed approval from Fox's publicity department. Which I'm like, I get that it's Marilyn Monroe, but like, what if you could save her? What if you could do something? Listen, like- I'm in PR, and if somebody important dies, I do not want anyone calling me. <laughs> call the, the hospital call, or the, yeah, police, call the police. You know what I mean? Right. Call the police. So there were four people at the house when Sergeant Clemens arrived. Dr. Greenson, her psychiatrist, Dr. Engelberg, the physician, Eunice, the um, housekeeper, and then also Eunice's son-in-law. He was a handyman, and he'd done a lot of work around the house. His name yeah, is- installing cameras and bugs, I'm sure. Right? <laughs> so his name is Norman Jeffries. And Eunice told the police that the reason why he was there is she had called him over to clean up the glass from the window that had broken. Because mm-hmm. that's what you're concerned street. about. And it's mm-hmm. like four in the morning. It's bizarre. Yeah, we know. We see you. We see you, Norman. We see you. So Sergeant Clemens found Dr. Greenson to be super defensive. He thought his behavior was really odd for the situation. He felt like Eunice's story was really rehearsed and that a lot of it didn't make sense at all. And he immediately felt like the scene looked staged. So he had been to lots of suicide scenes, had firsthand experience, and he thought that it looked like the body had been moved. So it was, her body was completely straight. Her arms were completely straight to her side and her legs were extended completely straight. And she was face down in her pillow, just kind of an unnatural way to 
lay down. And um, there was also like no trace of vomit or pill residue. They were telling him that she had taken all the pills on her nightstand and overdose, but she was on completely clean sheets. And typically when you overdose, your body kind of clenches up and you're going to have vomit residue. And none of that was there. He said that the sheets looked brand new. He also noticed bruises on her body and he saw that the window glass was actually outside of the house and not mm. inside the room. I mean, interesting. if you're going to do that, take the glass and just put it inside the house. Yeah. Okay. Am I allowed to give people murder tips? No. Okay. <laughs> That's off the record. Let's edit that out. <laughs> Eunice said that Marilyn's door had been locked, you know, but Sergeant Clemens noted that there wasn't a lock on the door. You think you'd be smart enough to, like, maybe check all these things before you tell it to the police, but I guess not. There's a lot of lying going on here. And Mm -hmm. this is also before um, forensic files where they tell you basically how to murder somebody and get away with it, you know, so they didn't have have a manual yet. So the empty pill bottles, there were several of them on her nightstand, and it basically you know, told the sergeant that she had to have swallowed over 50 pills, but there wasn't a single glass of water. There wasn't a champagne glass. There was no vessel of any sort that she could have drank from. So that was odd to him as well. And he even had the witnesses that were there searching with him in her room and in her bathroom. They didn't find any sort of cup, nothing. It's weird. Yeah. Mama needs a glass of water for all those pills. So Sergeant Clemens was relieved from duty after being there for less than an hour, and he was replaced with a man named Sergeant Marvin Ianone. So Ianone ends up used to be on JFK's personal security team. And what he did when he arrived was he sealed the house and he spoke with the witnesses that were there. And by the time the rest of the police force arrived, all of the witnesses had changed their story. And the four-hour time gap between finding Marilyn and calling the police was no longer there. They didn't have a time gap anymore. Also in the crime scene photos that were taken later, there's a glass of water on the side table. All of a sudden. Mm, That's interesting. Yeah. They were like, you know what? We're just going to recreate this scene the way that we want it to be. Shit, we forgot this one. They were like, we can't have Michigan's 52% homicide solve rate. (laughs) The coroner's investigation was pretty brief. And ultimately, it was ruled a, quote, probable suicide. So the correct way to label a death, if you're unsure, is undetermined. And to say probable suicide isn't just weird and unheard of, it's not done. So if you put undetermined, then the case has to remain open, and legally, it is an unresolved case. So the thought here is that they wouldn't allow them to put that because they didn't want it to be a cold case. They didn't want it to stay open. They didn't want it to be investigated. Also, the only witness that was interviewed was Dr. Greenson. Literally no one else was interviewed. Um, The DA that was leading the investigation, he was like famous for handling suicide scenes and he'd been to over 5,000 autopsies and he was completely convinced that it wasn't a suicide, especially after speaking with Dr. Greenson. And the medical examiners also didn't think it was a suicide. So the autopsy shows that Marilyn died between 8.30 and 10.30 p.m. She had bruises on her arms, legs, and her hip, which points to violence, Mm. although it was never investigated. And actually, this page of the report was completely disappeared from the file during the inquiry. So sketch. But we dug it up. This is an (laughs) investigation podcast now. (laughs) 
So Marilyn also had dual lividity. So when you die, your blood starts to pool Mm -hmm. because of gravity. So she had it on both sides of her body, which suggests that she died on one side and was flipped onto another. That's science for me. Yeah. So the police never examined this, which is sketchy. Her blood and liver samples showed an overdose of Nembutal, that drug we talked about earlier, as well as a drug called chloral hydrate. But there was no pill residue, no pills, or no capsules anywhere in her digestive system. Her stomach was totally empty. So they just made it up? It was faked. (laughs) It was faked. Wow. So... The concentration of Nembutal in her system suggested that it, had been, that it had been ingested hours before she actually died. So she could have been taking pills throughout the day, which she did take pills usually at night to go to sleep. But the people that she had been interacting with, the people on the phone, none of them, you know, said that she was acting strange or like she was on in an overdose type situation. So the thought is that the fatal dose was given to her in the form of an injection or of an, in an enema. Yeah. So there's a pear-like smell when you overdose on chloral hydrate pills, but if it's given to you in another form, as in liquid injection or as an enema, it has no smell and Marilyn's digestive tract gave off no smell. There were no needle marks found on Marilyn's body, although they're really hard to find because they're small, and the examiners couldn't conclusively rule it out. Marilyn's colon showed infl- inflammation, so the thought was that she had probably been given an enema. But her shit didn't <sighs> smell like pears. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> no, that's a that's a scientific so question. Joy- <laughs> <laughs> Answer the question, Bethany. Yeah. It's an honest question. <laughs> you didn't research that? Wow, way to go! You blew your first story. So a toxology report was requested on Marilyn's kidney, her stomach. Uh, urine and also her intestines to officially prove if the drugs were consumed orally or not. But when the report came back from the lab, none of the samples had been analyzed. And when they called the lab to inquire about it, the organs were completely missing. So oh, this wow. is the course they were. This yeah. is insane. Isn't this crazy? I didn't know anything no about this. This is crazy. Right? It's pretty shady. So this is the first time in LA County history that organ samples had ever disappeared. And this isn't just, you know, your average Joe. This is Marilyn Monroe, Mm -hmm. the biggest star of the day. You're going to have that under like lock and key, you know? So for them to just, you know, I don't know. They disappeared. Shady. Joe DiMaggio arranged Marilyn Monroe's funeral. He paid for it. He paid for her crypt. And he didn't allow anyone from Hollywood to attend. He was furious. He thought Hollywood and all the, everyone involved is what ruined her, what brought her to her death. So no one was invited. Frank Sinatra wasn't invited. Um, but Joe, you know, he actually blamed the Kennedys for Marilyn's ruin and her death. And it said that Bobby Kennedy went to Yankee Stadium and he was meeting a lot of different players. And Joe actually turned his back on him and would not shake his hand so good yeah i mean it is kind of their fault they're the ones that fucking opened their mouth and told her all this shit that they shouldn't have been saying can i switch and say that i kind of like joe now i know it's a dilemma because you're like you don't want to support him because you know that he hit her but because it's that thing where you're so used to people saying I'm going to change and they don't. Exactly. So you just kind of think like he's not going to change. You don't believe it because it hardly ever happens. So let's get into the theories. Theory number one is that Marilyn accidentally overdosed because all the drugs that were being prescribed to her by both of her doctors, her psychiatrist and her physician, um, 
is the cause for it. And so they wanted to cover it up, make it look like a suicide because they wanted to dodge malpractice charges. The thought behind this one is that Dr. Greenson asked Eunice, the housekeeper, to give Marilyn a chloral hydrate enema to calm her down that evening. Um, not knowing that her physician, Dr. Engelberg, had actually just prescribed Marilyn a new bottle of Nembutal the day before. So when they're taken together, it leads to a deadly amount of Nembutal in the blood and liver. Mm. Right. So the thought is that Murray gave Marilyn the enema around 1030, and then she found her dead at midnight. So they staged the scene to look like a suicide because they were all freaking out. What kind of debunks this theory is Dr. Greenson himself told the, the DA that he didn't believe Marilyn killed herself. So why would he say that if he was in on it? Mm-hmm. Dr. Greenson stopped seeing patients after Marilyn died and he just focused on teaching and said to have been depressed for the rest of his life. He has like archives, boxes and notes at UCLA where he taught. And some of them have been released, but there's still several that are sealed until um, 2039, I believe. So that's kind of sketchy, too. I feel like the answer might be in the sealed boxes. So episode 10,000, we are going to revisit this case (laughs) in 19 years. So that's theory number one. Theory number two is that Marilyn was killed as part of a communist conspiracy. So Dr. Greenson, Dr. Engelberg, her physician, and Eunice, they were all members of the Communist Party. The doctors had served on a board or a committee called Doctors Professional Group. And Eunice's husband also served on another committee with Dr. Greenson as well for the Communist Party. So the thought behind this theory is that they were after Marilyn's diary because it was full of secrets Mm -hmm. of national security. Theorists think that Eunice gave Marilyn the enema so that they could then break into her guest house and get into her file cabinet where she kept her diary. So something to debunk this, though, is that an assistant from the coroner's office came to Marilyn's house after her death to get her address book so they could let her family know that she had passed and Eunice gave him not only her address book but also her diary so why would she hand it over so easily if they killed her to get it also the problem with that theory is it makes no sense (laughs) I've debunked that one yeah so in 1985 a film crew came to interview Eunice Murray for a TV special and after they were done the cameras were turned off but the mics were still going Mm, and Eunice said on they have it on record. She said, quote, why at my age do I still have to cover this thing up? It became so sticky that the protectors of Robert Kennedy, you know, had to step in and protect him. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So this leads us to another theory, which is that the Kennedys were behind Marilyn's death because they were afraid she would reveal all of their secrets. So in 1993, Norman Jeffries, the handyman who was Eunice's son-in-law that was there to, mm-hmm. quote, clean the, up the glass. In 1993, he came forward And he said Marilyn actually fired Eunice on the day of her death. And that's why Eunice called Dr. Greenson to come over because she was upset about it. He says that around three or four o'clock, Bobby Kennedy and Peter Lawford both came to Marilyn's house and they told him and Eunice to leave. At first, Bobby Kennedy denied ever being in L.A. on this day or the following day. But eyewitness accounts and also helicopter records confirm that he had flown in and was at Marilyn's house. So... Private investigator Fred Otash, he's the guy who was running surveillance on Maryland for, like, the whole town. (laughs) Um, His tapes haven't been released to the public, but they have been heard by several people. So his tapes reveal that Bobby and Peter were at her house arguing with Maryland. 
On the tapes, apparently, Marilyn is screaming and she says, I feel passed around. I feel used. I feel like a piece of meat. Followed by Bobby asking, where is it? Where the hell is it? I have to have it. So the thought is that he's after the diary. He wants the diary. So the argument escalates until there's a banging sound and then Marilyn starts screaming at them to leave. So when Jeffries and Eunice come back to Marilyn's house, he says that she was super upset, but she wouldn't talk about it. She wouldn't tell them what was wrong or what had happened. Dr. Greenson finally arrived, and Jeffrey said that Marilyn told him she didn't want to see him for therapy anymore, so they ended up speaking in Marilyn's room privately for about an hour. Then Greenson comes out, tells Eunice to spend the night and keep an eye on her. So around 9.30 or 10, Bobby Kennedy arrived at Marilyn's with two men. One was carrying a black doctor's bag. So this was verified by eyewitness accounts from four different neighbors of Marilyn Monroe and also by Norman Jeffries, who's telling the story. And neither of the neighbors or Jeffries could recognize the men that showed up with Bobby. The men told Jeffries and Eunice again to leave the house. So he says that they went and waited at a neighbor's. So Fred Otash, the private investigator, his tapes reveal Marilyn going to her guest house with Bobby and the two men. And this was, you know, where she kept her file cabinet with the secret diary. And Bobby tells the men to give, quote, something to Marilyn to calm her down. And then you hear a disturbance, which theorists think is when they might have given her an injection or an enema, something to, again, calm her down. Mm. So Norman Jeffries says a little before 1030, they came back to Marilyn's house and Eunice Murray saw Marilyn unconscious on the bed in her guest house holding her phone. So when Marilyn found or when Murray found Marilyn, she called an ambulance and then she called Dr. Greenson. Now, Marilyn's neighbors told police that they had seen an, an ambulance at her house around 10 or 11. But the neighborhood ambulance service that provided that they're called the Schaefer Company, they completely denied that they ever sent an ambulance. So police just didn't look into it anymore. Well, this company also owned planes and helicopters that were used to covertly fly government personnel around the country. And guess who their biggest client was? The Kennedys. Exactly. George so, <laughs> Washington. That's the one. I knew George it. <laughs> 20 years after Marilyn's death, James Hall was a man who came forward and he said that he was the ambulance driver who went to Marilyn's house that night. The ambulance service actually said you know, this man never worked for us. They completely denied him, but social security and payroll records prove that he did work there. After this came out, Schaefer, the ambulance company, they admitted to sending an ambulance to Maryland's that night, but with a different driver whose name was Ken Hunter. There are no records of a Ken Hunter in 1962 because he wasn't even hired until the 1970s. Oh, they lied. They lied. So James Hall, the ambulance driver, he passed six different polygraph tests. And while he was under hypnosis, he was able to recall the exact floor plan to Marilyn's guest house. Wow. I like how they made him take six. They're like, five? You're still a little iffy. He was like, fine. Half dozen, you're in. James's ambulance attendant, Murray Leibovitz, he moved right after Marilyn died. He moved away. He changed his name. It's kind of a strange thing to do. But when the press finally found him, you know, he said, I don't want to have anything to do with this. I'm not going to make a statement. But in 1993, he finally did admit that he had been on the scene when Marilyn died and he corroborated James Hall's story and his account of that night. So what is James's story of that night? Here's what he said happened. He says they arrived at Marilyn's house around 1030 and were greeted by Marilyn's publicist and her really close friend, Pat Newcomb. He said that Pat was completely hysterical and took him to the guest cottage where Peter Lawford was. 
with Marilyn's body. Marilyn was unconscious. Marilyn's last phone call was to Peter Lawford. So earlier when we talked about, you know, her calling him and, but he said it was earlier. We thought it was later because he was having a dinner party. It's thought that she actually made that call later around 10 o'clock. And this is where she told him, quote, say goodbye to the president and say goodbye to yourself because you're a nice guy. This call really freaked Peter out. And he called Marilyn's neighbor, Joe and Dolores Narr. They had been at Peter's house earlier for that dinner party. And he asked him if he would go check on Marilyn. He was worried because of this phone call. So the neighbor, Joe, he was getting dressed to go over. But then Peter called back and he said, you don't need to go. I finally got a hold of Marilyn's doctor. And he said, everyone and Marilyn's all right. Everything's fine. Kind of strange. Because Peter ends up leaving his house immediately with Pat Newcomb, who was also there for the dinner party, and they go straight to Marilyn's. So James Hall, the ambulance driver, his attendant, Murray Leibovitz, they placed Marilyn on the floor and they began to revive her with the resuscitator. He says that they almost had her back to consciousness, but this is when Dr. Greenson arrived and he ordered them to remove the resuscitator and to perform CPR instead. So ambulance drivers, especially at this time, were trained, you know, you don't question a doctor, especially in an emergency situation. So he, they did what Dr. Greenson said. According to James Hall, Dr. Greenson then injected a brown liquid into Marilyn's heart. So, yeah. So James... Brown liquid into your heart's never a good Not thing. Not a good idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So James thought it was adrenaline, which was a common thing to do with overdose patients, but adrenaline has no color. It's clear. So some people think maybe the jar that had the the adrenaline was brown and that's what he thought was brown, but it was actually clear just coming from a brown bottle. Another fact is that Nembutal, the barbiturate, is brown in liquid form. So other people say, oh, he injected a barbiturate into her heart. It wasn't adrenaline. So James Hall recounts that Dr. Greenson injected the needle, but unfortunately he put it in at the wrong angle. And because he put it in at the wrong angle, it actually cracked Marilyn's rib Mm. and it was audible to them. But Greenson continued with the injection anyway, and it immediately killed Marilyn. So the debate with this is, you know, did Dr. Greenson accidentally do this? Like, did he accidentally do it on a bad angle? Or was he ordered to do it by the Kennedys? So the medical examiners didn't notice a needle mark near her heart, although, like we said, needle marks are hard to find. And the autopsy also doesn't mention a cracked rib, but they weren't looking for a rib. They didn't inspect her ribs. So we don't really know for sure. I know. So before James Hall and Murray Leibovitz left, they saw a police officer talking with Peter Lawford. But police were never dispatched to the scene. So why is there a policeman there? The officer was Sergeant Marvin Iannone, who we talked about earlier. He's the same officer who would show up hours later to relieve Sergeant Clemens. He had previously been on JFK's personal security team, and he was even off duty that night, um, but he had checked out a police car for some reason. Just strange, unusual. I do that a lot, though, on Fridays. Why not? So... Around 1045, Pat Newcomb, the publicist, Marilyn's friend, she was so upset that she called her friend named Natalie Jacob, who was at a concert at the Hollywood Bowl, and she tells her that Marilyn is dead at 1045. So this woman didn't come forward at the time. She waited until 1984 to come forward with this information, and the DA said that 
He said, quote, if we had known of Natalie Jacobs' statement at the time, it would have cast an entirely different light on our investigation, and perhaps we would have arrived at a different conclusion. Norman Jeffries, um, the handyman, he says that around midnight, Dr. Engelberg, the physician, um, arrived and officially pronounced Marilyn dead. He says that he saw about 12 men show up at this time, too, that were plainclothes police officers, and one was Intelligence Division Captain James Hamilton. So some big wigs. He says that the officers and Dr. Engelberg, her physician, worked together at this time to develop the murder scene. So they started staging it together. At 12.10 a.m., a police officer pulled over Peter Lawford because he was speeding, and he saw in his car Dr. Greenson and Bobby Kennedy, which again confirms Bobby Kennedy was in L.A. Hmm. Lawford told the police that um, he was driving Bobby Kennedy on official business, and that's why they were speeding. So, obviously, the police isn't going to, like, question Bobby Kennedy. He's like, okay, yeah, get out of here. At 2 a.m., a helicopter was chartered to pick someone up, not totally sure who, but someone, on the beach outside of Peter Lawford's house. It's thought that it was there to pick up Bobby, and the neighbors all complained of sand that had been blown into their pools from the helicopter. So, it is confirmed that the helicopter was there. Around 2 a.m., Peter Lawford went to private investigator Otash, who was running all the surveillance. He tells them that Marilyn was dead to go to her house, clear everything out, make sure there's no, you know, trace of her being bugged by them. So finally, after all of this happens, at 425 a.m., the police were finally officially called to Marilyn's house. In December 1962, a few months later, Chief Parker took the department's file on Maryland's case to Washington, D.C., where he met with Kennedy, it's on record, and the file has never been seen again. So if you go to L.A. Mm. County and you try to search for her files, there's nothing. Jeez. Wow. Yeah. So here's the final theory that... Basically, the pills Marilyn had been taking throughout the day in combination with the drugs that had been given to her by her doctors, potentially the Kennedys, caused her to overdose. And the the real problem was that none of these people were communicating with each other. No one knew she had already been given an enema or, you know, all these other Mm -hmm. things. This could explain why everything was so chaotic, because you think if it was a planned murder, it would go a little smoother, be a little more seamlessly planned. Um, So that's what kind of makes me believe it wasn't an intentional thing, but it was probably more in the accident realm. Um, But even if that's the case, Kennedy and Greenson would have still been held responsible for manslaughter. So thus the suicide cover up. So a private investigator really recently, like about a year ago, she interviewed Pat Newcomb, Marilyn's really good friend and publicist, um, who's 90 years old now, and she's never really spoken to the public um, this investigator asked her if she thought Marilyn had committed suicide, and Pat said no. Then she asked her if she thought Bobby Kennedy killed Marilyn, and Pat said, I hope not. That's not a strong mm. no. Yeah. Yeah. So, those are the cons- there are more conspiracies like she knew about aliens, things like that. I just, I don't oh, buy. Yeah. So, those are the main ones. And essentially, Marilyn was just this strong, badass woman who led the way for a lot of other women to follow. She, you know, supported gay rights. She was into civil rights. She loved Ella Fitzgerald. Ella was her favorite musician of all time. And Marilyn wanted to help her. So, she called one of the biggest nightclubs down on the Sunset Strip in LA. And she said, Hey, if you hire Ella, I'll be there every night on the front row. And so, that's what happened. And Ella is said, in her biographies that um, after that, she never had to play a small theater again. So Marilyn was really all about equality, all about love, all about the underdog, all about success, overcoming 
any obstacle that is thrown your way. And she's arguably the greatest actress of all time because, I mean, she created Marilyn Monroe. And everyone and their dog knows who she is. She was seems like she was way ahead of her time. She mm-hmm. was born yeah. way before her time. If she had been born in modern day, she could have been diagnosed with proper medication for depression and anxiety. It's thought that she could have been bipolar. So, you know, that could have been addressed. But unfortunately, those things weren't even labeled yet. Yeah. So she really was before her time when she needed help medically, but also she still paved the way for so many women in the industry. And yeah, she stood up for herself and did what she needed to do. Just always loved Marilyn. Loved yeah, her, she's her. your girl. She is totally my girl. So she I had to was, do her in first season or in first episode. Yeah, and she was like like we were saying before her time, obviously. And I'm sad that I did not know any of that. Totally because, before her time. Yeah. So I love in our first episode that we did kind of two Pat, like things that I were passionate about. Yeah. Detroit, my area. Yeah. And your girl, Marilyn. My lady, Marilyn Monroe. So uh, next week, we have Jordan Ooh. and Courtney will be telling their own oh, stories. Get ready. Yay. It's going to be a good time. Y'all, we did it. Um, what should episode. people do if they like this, Bethany? Okay. So if you like us, go subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast listening from um if you do subscribe on apple Podcasts, go ahead and rate and review that'll help us big time so only if it's five stars obviously <laughs> no really review us because we want to know yeah, what you like what you back. don't like if we talk too much exactly yeah you know find us on instagram um at wild society podcast or on twitter at Wild Society Pod on Facebook. Just search for Wild Society. Leave us some comments. Tell us what you think. Yeah. And we love you, Clatchy. Love Clitchy. You. Clitchy. 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 Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs> Bye.